Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. As children head back to the classroom, New York State Education Commissioner Betty Rosa visited the Schenectady City School District this week to welcome back students, staff, and administrators. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Rosa toured Pleasant Valley Elementary and Schenectady High School with Superintendent Anibal Soler. Soler says it's good to feel the excitement of a return to normalcy. Of just doing school like the way we used to do school, letting kids gather, letting kids be celebrated, uh, letting our teachers, you know, teach without any rules and restrictions. Rosa says rebounding from two years of COVID interruptions holds promise for educators and students alike. I think it's the um, focusing on obviously having the students uh, reconnecting with both their sense of wellness, their academics, uh, getting readjusting to being in, you know, back in school, but more importantly, thinking about um, the kind of projects and kind of work that they want to do in terms of engaging, you know, what some of the classes they were talking about, uh, options, pathways, different things that they're going to be considering for the future. Solaire says COVID hit the district hard. I think there's a, obviously a, an, an impact that we all saw with this isolated virtual learning, kids at home, you know, teachers trying to work miracles through a computer screen. And I think the reality is we've got some ground to gain. I think we saw some of that being gained this summer. We had our largest enrollment of, of summer enrollment in Schenectady's history. We had almost 1,600 students voluntarily participate in summer enrichment. Um, so I think that's starting that, that work. And I think for us, we have to think about our extended day programming. What are we doing with kids? How are we extending our school day? Uh, having our teachers kind of go back to some of the basics, you know, the algebra, the writing, the reading, some of the things that we know were missed without having that direct contact. So we got work to do. Rosa says she was particularly impressed by the high school's student-faculty relationship. I love the energy of the superintendent, the principal, the assistant principals. Overall, just the level of excitement. Uh, about being back with their children. Solaire says the school district has come a long way since he arrived on the scene in July 2021. He's grateful Rosa came to visit. We're really trying to change the narrative of Schenectady. You know, we're an urban community. We're really trying to, uh, we have this concept of Schenectady rising, trying to change kind of the perception of urban education, trying to redefine our kids' experiences, try to make some relevance to it. So for her to choose us out of 700 and some districts that she could have easily chosen, uh, I think lets us know that they're listening at Albany. They're paying attention to some of the work that we're doing. So I, I think it's a compliment to our staff, our students, our administrators that, you know, the commission wanted to see and take a quick peek at the work where we're starting to do in year two. So Lair says the district has prioritized student safety. What we know is our parents send us their most prized possession every day. So we've got to do everything we can to try to create that environment. Nothing is 100% foolproof, but I, you know, we've increased cameras, we've increased uh, physical safety personnel, we've added school counselors to every elementary. We didn't have school counselors in every elementary school uh, before I got here. Now we have that. So we're adding layers to try to create 
uh, proactive approaches to safety and security and climate. Rosa had this message for teachers, parents, and students. Enjoy. This is uh, the joy of, of learning, the joy of, you know, for teachers, it's the joy of teaching. For students, it's the joy of learning because this is, the, you know, this is the pathway that's going to support you. And for students, this is, these are the brushes that teachers give you to paint uh, your future and your tomorrow. The new school year brings relaxed COVID guidelines from the state. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said in August, preemptive testing is over and masks are not required. The days of sending an entire classroom home because one person was symptomatic or test positive, those days are over. We've been through um, that experiment. No days, no longer we're going to be sending kids home, keeping them away from that essential experience of being together in a classroom. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, a story in the program today about the state education commissioner, Betty Rosa, visiting the Schenectady City School District. You know, start of school year, the commissioner comes in, wants to see how the school is operating. But what we know now from the analysis by organizations like the New York School Boards Association and others is that the learning curve has been drastically pushed back because of the pandemic. There is, of course, still COVID out there. And although some of the masking requirements now on public transportation are optional, teachers, parents, administrators are worried about that as well. And the long-term effects of a loss of learning among students, which has set them back many years. We know it happened. We are now testing. We're seeing the results. It's not pretty. The idea that so many students have lost so much during this period is really a very serious state of affairs for our education. You know, the one thing about education is you're supposed to move forward. You're supposed to get smarter as a result of all of this. And what we are finding is that that is not what has happened here. Because of the COVID, because of all the tests that we have faced, we're falling back. And that is something that educators are going to have to deal with. And, you know, I'm glad I'm not teaching college anymore. I did it for a long, long time. And I know that it's a challenging thing when we don't really have the information that we need. And so we're going to have to be collecting. We're going to have to be testing. We're going to have to know whether or not we have lost such significant ground that we'll have to figure out new ways to get back where we were. You know, let's stick with college for a moment since you brought it up. and that's Sure. And this has to do with voting. SUNY campuses, State University of New York, public colleges and universities, even BARD, for example, will have polling sites for the elections coming up. How much of an impact do you think that'll make when students have, let's just say, a better opportunity of voting because the polling place is right on campus? Well, David, you and I have been teaching college for so long. We know full well that while you say to students, are you going to vote? And everybody says, sure. 
They don't. Now, the easier you make it, the more marginal people will vote. So if you say, all right, you just have to get out of your pajamas or even keep them on with a bathrobe over it, hopefully, and walk, you know, <laughs> 25 steps to vote, more people will. Whether there will still be people who won't even take those 25 steps, you better bet that that is a real problem. People always tell us as professors and others that they will vote and then they don't. What is it about this opportunity when countries and people in our country has fought like the Dickens for world wars and others like it in order to maintain the ability to vote? Well, it is something that can only be seen as lethargy and we have seen it all too often. And when we throw away that birthright and we throw away that ability to make these choices, it's not good. You're here. Go out and vote, college students. Bathrobe optional. All right. Well, we had an interesting conversation with Senator James Scoofus this week. Mm -hmm. He is a Democrat. He is one of those Democrats that, because I guess you could lay that at the party's feet of the way they handled redistricting, had his district redrawn. Now, he has maintained that as a result. But you spoke to him about redistricting and you know whether the Democrats made a big mistake. Well, we do know that this was a very tough time. Redistricting was done because it had to be done. Every 10 years, you've got to re-sort things out. And this was that year. And so, you know, we had redistricting. We had people losing districts, gaining districts, deciding whether they're running District A or District B. A very scary time for a lot of politicians who do not want to lose their office and their power. And that's what was going on this year. This was a major year. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartalk. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. The New York Farm Laborers Wage Board formally sent its recommendation to the state labor commissioner this week that the farm worker overtime threshold should be lowered. Farm labor advocates are calling for the recommendations to be approved as soon as possible, while farmers say the process was stacked against them. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. The Wage Board has been taking testimony for over two years regarding a proposal to lower the overtime threshold for farm workers from 60 to 40 hours over 10 years. At their final meeting Tuesday evening, Buffalo Urban League past president and board chair Brenda McDuffie was one of the two members of the three-member board who voted to forward the recommendation to the state labor commissioner. We believe that this decision protects the right of farm laborers while taking in account the needs of farmers. AFL-CIO past president Dennis Hughes also voted to approve the report. New York Farm Bureau president David Fisher, the third member of the board, eviscerated the report for what he called multiple inaccuracies and conclusions based on opinions. It's not a full and accurate depiction of the data and testimony gathered during the two-year-long process. The report written by the Department of Labor justifies the wage board recommendations 
based on cherry-picked data and inflammatory opinions. Fisher held a press conference with the Grow New York Farms Coalition soon after the meeting. Northeast Dairy Producers Association Vice Chair Keith Kimball said he is most disappointed by the wage board process. Regardless of the outcome, this process was not fair. It was not fair to farmers, it was not fair to consumers, and most importantly, it was not fair to farm workers. And the outcome was decided long before the wage board process ever started. The wage board members were appointed two to one, specifically omitting our own state expert and commissioner on agriculture to get the desired votes. Meanwhile, supporters of lowering the threshold met virtually on Wednesday. Hispanic Federation President and CEO Frankie Miranda called on the labor commissioner to swiftly adopt the wage board's recommendations. Granting farm workers a 40-hour work week will mark an end to a legacy of Jim Crow that has been allowed to continue in our state for over 80 years, and at last, grant farm workers the overtime protections that virtually every other worker enjoys. New York Farm Coalition member and New York State Vegetable Growers Association president Brian Reeves finds that reference disturbing. The reason why farms have been treated differently has nothing to do with prejudice or Jim Crow. It has to do with the weather and the climate and the nature of our work and the perishability of our products. There is one line in the report that says there's been no evidence of racial discrimination or injustice on farms in New York State. Migrant Clinicians Network founding medical director Dr. Ed Zerowest noted that as a society, we have moved away from a work week longer than 40 hours without overtime because it is dangerous to health. It makes no sense that farm workers who do some of the most treacherous and important work are carved out of labor protections guaranteed to nearly everyone else. The right to a 40-hour work for farm workers should be understood first and foremost as a labor protection, not as a way for farm workers to make more money. The labor commissioner must decide whether to approve the recommendations by October 21st. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Over his many decades in public life, Richard Ravitch has worked in the private sector and the upper echelons of New York State government. Former Lieutenant Governor and Metropolitan Transportation Authority Chair is now on the Board of Directors of the Volcker Alliance, the nonprofit established a decade ago by former Fed Chair Paul Volcker that aims to bolster the public sector workforce and keep government spending honest. Ravitch was a frequent voice on these airways while serving as lieutenant governor under Governor David Patterson through 2010, and he joined the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus this week. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Do you miss Albany? I miss Albany. Yes, I do. I miss having drinks at Jack's. I miss the Capitol. I miss the whole scene. Now, 
in your quotes over the years, uh, you have not had the best things to say about being lieutenant governor. So I understand there's a distinction between missing Albany and missing that job. Well, you know, when you're lieutenant governor with a governor like David Patterson, who is not the most commanding type of person, um, you're caught in a dilemma because you don't want to make headlines and take uh, any media away from the governor. Um, but you have your own reputation to worry about. So it's always a little bit of a tension. But uh, it was a difficult time because of the the opposition, uh, the Dean Scalos and the Republicans gave to my appointment because of the fact that the Senate was evenly divided and I had a, a deciding vote. Anyway, all of that is history. I have enormous respect for the legislature uh, as well as for uh, the current governor. You're one of the few people to know. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about a year ago when Governor Hochul was about to be elevated from lieutenant governor to governor. Does having that job as lieutenant governor prepare you to be governor? No. <laughs> How come? That has nothing to do with being governor. Particularly when you had a governor like Andrew Cuomo, who I don't think made any effort to include Kathy Hochul in things. But Kathy Hochul is a very bright, able woman, and uh, she's catching on to be governor. How do you think she's doing so far? Well, I think she's facing some very tough uh, issues like congestion pricing for the MTA region, uh, like how do you preserve your fiscal well-being in a manner to take care of the the forthcoming end of federal aid when the state is not going to be receiving what it has recently received. So she's striking a very careful balance between trying to keep enough uh, liquidity so you have some capacity to deal with what is called the fiscal cliff and uh, but she's under enormous pressure to spend money on things that are publicly very useful and very important. It's as tough a set of political decisions as anybody would have to make because everything she's spending money on is something that money should be spent on. And our taxes are now the highest per capita taxes of any state in the United States. And the amount of debt that New Yorkers have per capita is greater than any state in the United States. So it is not so easy. It is not so easy to manage the fiscal affairs of New York State. Last year, Governor Hochul, uh, with the controllers urging, put more money in New York State's uh, reserves. Uh, do you think there's enough there for the state to withstand you know, a potential recession? I don't know, because I don't know what tax revenues are going to be produced. And I don't know what, for example, this 
state unemployment insurance fund owns owes billions of dollars to the federal government. If the federal government doesn't get paid, they have the power to impose a tax on all employers in New York State. Now, I don't know whether they're going to do that. Um, I hope not. But we have to repay the money. So we have a lot of uncertainties that lie ahead fiscally. What are your concerns about a potential uh, recession? The MTA, number one, the MTA, number two, and the MTA, number three. And that's obviously a personal thing for you. Well, I can't say it's a personal interest. Obviously, my involvement with the MTA results in my keeping abreast of the situation. I'm giving a major speech at the Citizens Advisory Committee of the MTA which I'm going to talk about the fiscal situation. And um, those are big numbers. We owe the Fed, or the MTA owes the Fed, Federal Reserve, uh, $3 billion. Congestion pricing ain't going to be what they hoped it would be in terms of producing volume for capital plan. Uh, And uh, so... I think that's the single biggest problem. How much of that is brought on by uh, the pandemic, and how much are the of these are structural, you know, systemic problems that predated COVID? Well, obviously, the loss of ridership as a result of COVID, and the fact that still so many people are working at home, we have a twenty-three or twenty-four percent vacancy. Uh, uh, rate in commercial office space in New York. Um, those are important factors. Um, uh, us has been a reluctance to raise the fare. Um, and there's been a reluctance to do anything dramatic to reduce labor costs. What would you do about uh, the persistent low ridership? I think, look, I believe that cities are the greatest socializing institution that mankind ever created. And I'm not smart enough to tell you how long it's going to take, but New York City is not going to go away. It's going to increase in activity and population steadily over these next years. And when it does, Mass transit will get back to the kind of usage that it had before. Um, I'm just not smart enough to predict when that will happen, but it will happen. And do you think uh, Mayor Eric Adams is on the right track when he pushes for a return to, you know, New York City's many, many offices and and in-person work? Is that part of, uh, you know, getting people back on the subway? Yes, absolutely. How do you think Mayor Adams is doing so far? Well, I'm not familiar with very much of anything else, but, you know, he's got a tough problem. That crime rate is increasing. There's just so much a mayor can do. Um, You know, he doesn't have unlimited resources either. He's, He's also facing the same kind of problem that the governor's facing, and that is how much do you hold in reserve 
to deal with uh, the situation a couple of years from now when all the federal money is used up. Why isn't the federal infrastructure spending, uh, the American Rescue Plan Act funding, uh, now we've got the new Inflation Reduction Act uh, that President Biden championed. How come that's not enough of a federal boost in funding for New York State? I don't know enough to give you a, a rational answer to that question. It helps enormously. It's invaluable. It takes time. The, the gestation period of an infrastructure project is not overnight. You need local approval. You have controversies on locational decisions, um, on priorities. So all that money is going to be spent overnight. It's going to be spent over a period of years. And it will be incredibly helpful to New York. Earlier, you mentioned New York's very high taxes. Uh, The Republicans in this election cycle have made uh, an election issue out of New York State's shrinking population. I know you were talking about the city a moment ago. Uh, why do you think New York's population is consistently dropping relative to other states? Um, I'm not sure I know enough to give you a uh, totally rational answer, but I think the high taxes contribute to the exodus, plus the um, attraction of the southern climate has something to do with it. But as I said earlier, I'm very bullish about New York City. I think it's always going to attract young people because it's the greatest socializing institution in the world. When I go to a restaurant early, there's a bar there. Two months ago, it wasn't full. Now it's beginning to get filled with young people who come there to meet each other. That's what is New York's great attraction. As the Sports open up, and the opera opens up, and the concerts open up, and movie theaters open up. You're going to see New York recovering. I'm just not smart enough to tell you how long it's going to take. That's Richard Ravitch, former lieutenant governor of New York and MTA authority chair, now on the board of directors of the Volcker Alliance. He spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2236. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino.